We will turn to several places in Scripture this morning. First from the prophecy of Micah, Micah chapter 5. Micah 5, we'll read the verses 1 through 6. The book of Micah contains a summary of Micah's prophetic ministry over the course of some 40 years, and every several verses is a distinct unit that can be read on its own. It's good to keep that in mind as we step into Chapter 5, we don't need to know all of the context of the book, but take these verses as they come. Micah 5, then beginning at verse 1, the prophet says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So far from the prophecy of Micah, let's also turn to the New Testament, to the book of John. John chapter 10, and we'll read the verses 1 through 30. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking around in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So far from the Gospel of John. As we were brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Micah, one of the themes that you, you run into most often is this notion of the kingdom of God. It's something you see also very often in the Gospels. Micah chapter 1 focuses on the sin that's present in the kingdom at the time, the decadence, the decay that the kingdom was experiencing. Micah 2 focuses on what the kingdom needs in order to be reformed. Micah 3 is a message for the leadership of God's kingdom. And Micah 4, it's a text I've preached here before in this church, is a powerful prophecy about the glorious future of God's kingdom. As you read about all those things, especially in, in Micah 4, it's, it's easy to become excited about God's kingdom. I never get tired of hearing about God's kingdom or speaking about it. Maybe you'll notice that. Because it's what God is building here on earth. It's the direction that God is guiding history. You can look back and you can see what God has done in the past. And you can see what God is doing around the world today. And you can look forward and you can see God's plans for this earth, for our human race. And they are glorious plans. That's the kingdom of God. But it can, be, it can be easy to get excited about the kingdom and what God is doing in the world and forget about one absolutely essential thing without which the entire kingdom could not exist. The very idea of a kingdom would make no sense at all. What's that one thing? Well, it's that at the center of that kingdom, reigning gloriously, is the king. 
It's very easy to become excited about God's kingdom, excited about what God is doing in the world, and to, to a point where we lose sight of the king. And of course, the kingdom is all about the king. We forget sometimes that all the work that's being done in the, around the world or done by the church is moving in the direction of falling down and worshiping before the king and serving that king. The glory of the kingdom is the glory of the king himself. And that's where Micah takes us in chapter 5. In Micah 4, we, we can read about how the worship of God is going to go out and one day dominate the earth, how the nations are going to stream to God to be taught by his word, how God's word is going to transform human life and affairs to a point where even the nations lay down their arms, they beat their swords into plowshares. And it can be, it can be very easy to think about all that and close your Bibles and say, ah, for that day. But Micah in chapter 5 tells us, wait, before you close your Bibles, there's one more essential piece. None of this is going to happen without the Christ. God's plan revolves around one central figure who's coming. A, a ruler who is going to be endowed with the very power of God in order to make these things happen. In order to bring God's kingdom to earth. And in this chapter, Micah uses then some very interesting language to describe that ruler. He calls him a shepherd, because a shepherd is what you need. It's what's needed not only to protect God's people from enemies, that was the foremost concern on, on their mind at the, in, in that day, but also to guide God's people, to lead God's people in his ways. In other words, if chapter 4 is ever going to happen, even in our world today as well, you need chapter 5. So I proclaim to you then the word of God from Micah 5, and we can summarize the message by saying, The great shepherd tends his flock throughout the earth. That's our main idea. And with that as the theme then, we'll see three things. First, this shepherd comes to his flock. You can see that in verses 2 and 3. Second, he leads his flock. That's verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. And third, he defends his flock. That's verses 5 and 6. Now, because we have the advantage of hindsight, we might miss the effect that this prophecy had on the people of that day. Of course, Micah 5 is a very well-known text for us today. It's often read around Christmas time. But it's good to take a moment to see this prophecy from the shoes of the people who would have heard it for the first time. Micah, as I mentioned earlier, didn't deliver all of this book in one shot, in one long sermon. No, this book, it's a collection of the key prophecies of Micah's entire 40-some years of being a prophet. Every few verses contains this distinct prophecy. You can read it on its own. It's a distinct unit, and it was given at some point in Micah's ministry. Well, verse 1 tells us what was going on when Micah spoke these words in our text. He opens with these words, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. So when Micah delivered this prophecy, the city was under siege. Most commentators agree Micah probably delivered this from Jerusalem in a time when the city was surrounded by the massive Assyrian army. 
The people would have been terrified of the outcome. They would have known all about the cruelties of the Assyrians, what they did to the people that resisted them. The faithful believers also would have been deeply discouraged. Unbelieving foreign armies representing these other gods that don't even exist. They had surrounded their city on the mountain of their God. So verse 1 tells us siege is laid against us. And even more, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So not only were they defeated or very quick, very soon to be defeated, but their ruler was defenseless. He was humiliated. It was not a good time to be an Israelite. That's the context of this prophecy that Micah gives. And that might surprise us now that we've, we've read the text already once. Verses 2 through 6 don't really seem to have much to do, very obviously anyways, with that siege. Micah starts there in verse 1 because that, that's what was on everyone's mind. But then he seems to go in a completely different direction afterwards, talking about a ruler who's going to come from Bethlehem. So you might have expected Micah, being the prophet of God, to give the Israelites some kind of comfort that actually has to do with what they're going through in that moment. In our day, we would have told Micah that his preaching needs to be more relevant. In the middle of a siege, what kind of comfort is it that a ruler is going to be born some hundreds of years from now? But here's, here's where we moderns maybe can learn something. God's message isn't always directed only to the situation on the ground. Micah could have told the Israelites a lot that would have been comforting for them. He could have told them that at least God is going to take care of you in exile. He could have told them that exile and slavery is not so bad if you have a good master. He could have told them, and it would be true, that someday they're going to come home. But God doesn't step into this terrible moment only to add some comfort to make them feel better in the moment. No, his purpose is to direct their sights beyond this moment. That's what good preaching, faithful preaching, ought to do. It should redirect our vision, which is so often nearsighted, and, and, and point us to what God is doing or God is planning for his kingdom around the globe. In our postmodern age, you often hear it said that the church needs to start addressing the questions that people are asking. And, and there's certainly some truth to that. We'll see that in, in a few minutes. But what did the Lord Jesus teach us? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He didn't say, find out where God answers your questions. No, he says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. In other words, when God comes to us with his word... He doesn't simply accept the fact that we're not seeking his kingdom or his righteousness and then just cater to our concerns instead. No, he redirects our focus. He reorients our priorities. Yes, our earthly concerns do matter to him. He knows them all, even before we ask him. But that's not what is most important. So when God comes to us then with a word of comfort, we ought to prepare ourselves for the fact that it might not be the kind of comfort that we were hoping for. He doesn't, first of all, comfort us with what we think is most important, but with what he knows is most important and is best for us. 
So his word of comfort then also, which he gives to the Jews in Jerusalem, while a city is under siege, it begins in verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the too little even to be counted among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Of course, we've all heard of Bethlehem now. We know who the promised ruler is, is going to be. When we think of Bethlehem, we immediately think of the Lord Jesus being born and, and laid in a manger. But of course, the people in Micah's day didn't know that. They knew that Bethlehem was the place where David was born, so they had heard of it. But that's about all that they would have associated with Bethlehem. It wasn't a significant place. It wasn't a place where history was changed forever the way that it is to us. So what would have come to their minds then when they heard of Bethlehem? Well, I think we can point to two things that would have come to their minds, two two points that Micah is making by bringing in Bethlehem. First, Bethlehem is where David came from, but it's not where David and his family line are to be found now. See, David came out of humble Bethlehem, but he went to Jerusalem, and his throne at that time was in Jerusalem. And one of his descendants was sitting on his throne there. So, and here's the point, if you're going to Bethlehem, you're not going to look for David. At least not the David that you have now. He's in Jerusalem. If you're going there, you're looking for a new David. And that's the point that Yahweh is making. The line of David that sits on the throne in Jerusalem now is so corrupt and so worthless that God is going back, so to speak, to the drawing board, back to Bethlehem. So that's the one thing they would have thought of when they heard Micah start talking about Bethlehem. He's going back. He's starting over. The other thing that that Bethlehem means is that this is clearly going to be God's work, not that son of David's work or not any other human work. Just like the first David was an unimpressive person who was a shepherd boy coming from an unimpressive small town, Bethlehem. The point is underscored here in verse 2. He says, You, Bethlehem, though you are too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. I preached on this, this text last summer in Guelph, and I tried to underscore this point by, making, by using an example that, that they would have understood. And I said it would be kind of like going up to Ottawa and saying, O Alora, from you will come forth a ruler. It wasn't the first place that you would have thought of. But the point then is to make clear that, exact, that, that whatever happens is going to be exactly God's work and not man's work. It's not coming from the positions of power or influence where you would expect. It's like what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In the same way, humble little Bethlehem, which is hardly worth counting as a clan of Judah, is the perfect place for God to raise up a savior for the world so that all human power would be put to shame. All glory would be God's alone. 
So the first part of God's promise here then to the people in Jerusalem under siege is that he's going to send a ruler who's not going to be like those corrupt rulers that you find sitting on David's throne today. He's going to be a man like David, a man after God's own heart. And he will be even more than David was, because our text says that his origin, his his coming forth literally is from of old, from ancient days. God is not merely raising up another David. No, he's raising up someone much greater, someone who he prophesied about long, long ago, someone for whom the world has been waiting since the very beginning of history. But still, we might ask, okay, that's comforting, but what does that have to do with the siege in Jerusalem? It's a beautiful promise, but we know that it's going to be another 700 years or so before Jesus Christ, the son of David, would be born in Bethlehem. And yet, this promise has everything to do with that siege, just not in the way that you might obviously recognize. The connection is made in verse, in verse 3. He says, Therefore, see that's a connecting word. It's saying there's a connection between what's going to be said in verse 3 and what he just said in verse 2. He says, for that reason, Israel will be given up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people in Israel. If you miss the logic there, don't feel bad. Many commentators can't seem to figure it out either. What exactly is the connection between this this coming ruler in verse 2 and Israel being abandoned or given up until a certain time in verse 3? Well, God is telling his people that Israel needs to be abandoned or literally given up into the hand of Assyria in order for this promised ruler to come. Why? What's the connection between those, those two things? To answer that, we need to know something about this she who is in labor that's mentioned in verse 3. Some people think this text is talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus, but I don't think that's the, the first referent or the most obvious referent. I think this she who is in labor is the same person that you would find in chapter 4, verse 10. If you look there, you read, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So she who is in labor is not so much Mary, it's actually Israel, the people of God. God is using this this metaphor of pregnancy and labor to describe what Israel is going through in this moment, in this time of siege. It's a very painful, traumatic moment for them. But it's absolutely necessary. This is the point that Mike is making. This painful moment that will bring you out to Babylon where you don't want to go, this is exactly what you need in order to give birth to the real kingdom of God which is the end result of this painful moment. Remember that the kingdom of God, you can see this in chapter 4, you can see it in the other chapters, is going to involve the word of God going out, teaching the nations God's ways, showing them God's paths. 
But how is that going to happen? In Micah's day, the entire kingdom of God was still restricted to that tiny territory of Palestine. And even there, sin reigned rampant. Many people didn't know the word of God or didn't even care. The Israelites had failed to be a blessing to the nations like God had promised Abraham they would be. They had failed to show the nations God's ways as they were supposed to do. And in fact, they were living in even worse sin than the nations around them. So in order for God's kingdom to come, here's the connection that's being made. In order for God's kingdom to come, the pride of Israel would need to be broken and the people of God would need to be scattered all over the earth. When that humbling and that scattering was accomplished, then the world would be ready for the Messiah who would come and gather his true people from among the nations. That's what's being referred to at the very end of verse 3, saying, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The people of Jerusalem that, that would have heard this prophecy from Micah, they might have assumed that brothers refers to the other ten tribes, who by this time were already largely scattered among the nations. But if they assumed that, that Micah was only referring to other Jews, other descendants of Abraham, then they were actually badly mistaken. It's true, the promises were made to Abraham, but they were also made to all those who feared God and who kept his commandments just as Abraham did. So God was going to show his people that their true brothers were those who worshipped him and those who served him as their own father Abraham did. Ethnic Israelites were going to be scattered among the nations, but true Jews were the ones that would be gathered. They were the children of the promise. These, Scripture tells us, are the true brothers and sisters of God's people. It's like the Lord Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 12, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's like the Apostle Paul also teaches us in Romans 9. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So when the promised ruler came, he would gather not just those scattered ethnic Jews all around the nations. No, he would gather the true people of God. So they needed to be scattered if God's people were going to be gathered. And that brings us to our second point then. The great shepherd leads his flock or gathers his flock. The language of shepherd is actually first introduced in our text in in verse 4, but Micah, already, but Micah uses this idea of shepherding to describe what this promised ruler is going to be like. In verse 3, he's only called a ruler. But in verse 4, Micah starts talking about him as a shepherd. Now, shepherds and, and rulers, they have a lot in common. It's a very similar term. They have authority over those under their care. They protect them. They also lead them. They make decisions for them. But a shepherd is more than a ruler. A shepherd rules, but he does more than just rule. A shepherd has a relationship with his sheep. The sheep know him. They follow his voice. As we read from the words of the Lord Jesus, a shepherd has authority over his sheep like any other ruler, but he also personally guides and teaches them. 
And this, this is what the kingdom of God needed in that moment when Micah was preaching to the people of Jerusalem. Again, think about the kingdom of God in the days of Micah. When Micah started his ministry, the kingdom did have a strong ruler. Jotham was king in Judah, and he inherited a strong kingdom from his father Uzziah. There were really good officers in his government. The kingdom was well administered. We know that the physical kingdom flourished under Jotham's rule. The Bible tells us he built the upper gate of the temple. He completed major construction projects in the city and on the walls. He also built several new cities in Judah as well as castles and fortresses. So what God's kingdom needed was not a strong, powerful ruler who could gather the people in that way. No, what the people needed was someone who would lead them. You can read about Jotham's rule in Second Chronicles 27, and it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like his father Uzziah had done, but the people continued their corrupt practices. So he was a good king, but he couldn't change the hearts of God's people. So when his perverse son Ahaz later became king after him, then the people were all too happy to follow Ahaz back to the gods of Assyria. The problem wasn't in the walls or the gates or the palaces or castles or anything like that. No, the problem was in the hearts of God's people. Electing the right leader doesn't fix the hearts of God's people. And so we're reminded then of a point that's made over and over again in the book of Micah. God's kingdom will never be found in walls or palaces or chariots or armies. No, God's kingdom is in the hearts of God's people. And so as a result, God is very pleased sometimes to break down those walls, to destroy those palaces for the sake of his kingdom in order to advance his kingdom. So he sends the people into exile. He destroys the temple in order to build his true kingdom. His kingdom isn't in the temple. It's in the hearts of God's people. So God didn't need a strong political leader. No, he needed a true shepherd who would change people's hearts, who would lead people back to their God and to the truth. He needed someone capable of leading them back to the word. Because we know from chapter 4, it's when, when they turn to the word, when the nations stream to God's word, then God's kingdom will be built. And that's what a shepherd does. That's the shepherd's job. He leads the sheep to the only place where they can find life, which is back to their God and back to his word. And that is precisely what the Lord Jesus did when he came. He taught the people the word of God. Like we see, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. He showed them the way back to their God. That's what the kingdom of God needed. Not merely a political ruler, someone who could manage the earthly affairs of the kingdom, but a true shepherd to lead God's people back to their God. We're told in our text that he will do this. He will stand and shepherd God's flock in the strength of Yahweh and in the majesty of Yahweh, his God. In other words, he will lead them and gather them as a shepherd, but he will do so not like any ordinary shepherd, but with the power of God himself. Why that added detail that he will do this in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of Yahweh's name? 
Well, because the kingdom of Judah had other good kings who would do their best to do exactly that as a shepherd, leading God's people back to God's ways. But all of them, even David, had their weaknesses. No human leader is able to change the sinful human heart in God's people, not even in himself. Earthly kings and presidents and prime ministers, they can influence attitudes. They can put good policies in place to protect people. But God alone can change human hearts. God alone can undo the damage that sin has done to our hearts. Not even the elders of the church nor the minister is capable of doing that. If God is at work in the hearts of God's people, then they will hear the shepherd's voice and they will follow the shepherd, even if it's through the words of the elders or the minister. But if God is not at work in someone's heart, then no instruction, no phone calls, no home visits, no begging, no pleading will ever be sufficient to change a human heart. Nothing but the power of God can transform a sinner's heart and bring a sinner to repentance That's why it says this coming shepherd would lead his sheep in the strength of Yahweh and in the majesty of his name. But to do this, a shepherd also needs to open the way to God. It's not enough to bring God's people right to the gates of heaven so they can see the splendor of God, God's holiness, God's power, but can't get past the gates of heaven which are closed to sinners. Unless our sin is covered, we would never even want to go through those gates, to be led into the presence of a holy God. So the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd who these words are speaking about, he also became the way to God by paying for the penalty of the sheep, by opening a way for us to return to God. You can notice in the text we read from from the Gospel of John that Jesus says not only that he is the good shepherd, but he's also the door. God's people don't just need a shepherd, they do need that, but they also need a way to God. The way is closed until someone can open it by the power of God. And that's why John also tells them, my sheep hear my, that's why Jesus tells them rather, that my sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life. So we see then that the church gathering work of the great shepherd, it's a work that begins with God's initiative in small little Bethlehem, and it's carried out entirely by God's strength. We can never, or we can, we can easily get excited about what God is doing in the world through our efforts or through the church around the world, but we, we must never forget, without God's power to change hearts, And without the work of Christ to make the way to God possible again, without that, all the work that human missionaries do or social justice workers or pastors, they would never be enough to bring about the kingdom of God. If it was up to human pastors or human laborers to bring about the kingdom of God, it would never happen. In fact, the church would fall apart tomorrow. No, the only reason that missionaries see success in their fields is because the sheep there hear the, word, hear the voice of the great shepherd who's calling them to him through their voice. 
The only reason that pastors and elders see the church and congregation growing or flourishing is because behind the many sermons and behind the visits and the phone calls and the words of admonition and exhortation, behind all that, the sheep are hearing the voice of the shepherd who's gathering and leading the flock in the strength of Yahweh himself. And so we come to our final point. The great shepherd also defends his flock. We see this in the last two verses of our text. In Micah 5, verse 5, He shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. See, now these verses might come as a surprise to us because after Micah has drawn our attention away from the immediate problem, the siege that's being laid against the city, now he comes back to it. And we might ask why. If it's about directing us to God's kingdom in the future, why is Micah still talking about Assyria in the present We know that Assyria is God's tool to scatter the sheep. We need Assyria in order for the kingdom of God to come. So why is Micah now talking about God defending his flock from Assyria? Well, here is where Micah does directly address the concerns of God's people in Jerusalem. But now he does so from a much higher perspective. Their eyes are on the kingdom of God, on what God is doing for his glory and for his kingdom. God is not, though, so detached from his people as to forget that then, in the middle of that siege, they also needed comfort. They're still human beings. They were rightly terrified of what the Assyrians were about to do to them and their wives and their children. The knowledge that God was doing all of this for good, it would have been a comfort. It would have been an assurance in the middle of that war. And that And that is what God would have them comforted by. But then God also brings them the comfort for their immediate trial. Though they will face great suffering on the road to his kingdom, he will still protect his church from being destroyed by these earthly powers that seem insuperable, unable to beat. He will also, one day he promises, shepherd those Assyrians, those vicious, barbarous Assyrians. But he will shepherd them with the sword. God is the ruler of the whole earth. To his own people, he's a shepherd whose rod and staff comforts them, in the words of Psalm 23. But to their enemies, he's a different kind of shepherd altogether. Then you might think of Psalm 2, where he shepherds the nations with a rod of iron. You don't want a shepherd who has a rod of iron. So then, the the people of God are left with this in their minds. Whether one loves the shepherd or hates him, whether one follows the voice of the shepherd or flees from it, Micah tells us all people will submit to that shepherd who is coming, one way or another. His sheep will follow his voice. And if necessary, they will be corrected by his rod in love. That's a comfort to them. His enemies will be shepherded with a sword. And they will be compelled to submit to him. But either way, all people in heaven and on earth will submit to this shepherd. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
He's sovereign over the nations whom he's gathering as his sheep and he's also destroying his enemies, all the powers that raise themselves against him. So then, brothers and sisters, may we also praise the shepherd, follow the shepherd's voice, listen to him as he leads us, and be comforted even when he corrects us, because his rod to us is a comfort. We are the people that he shepherds and leads to green pastures. And he, our shepherd, will never, even in a time of siege, even if we should face persecution, he will never leave or forsake us. Amen. Let's respond to